Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our guests, half guests, half family, Tom and Donna, welcome. And to Erica, welcome. Pleased to have you with us. We've just crossed into a new year on the Gregorian calendar, of course, not on God's calendar. The real new year starts in a couple of months. And as people make that transition, their thoughts are to where they can be better in the coming year. Oftentimes, as we saw here, opportunities present themselves to institutions, countries, families, nations, businesses, to reset and rebuild. Opportunity, learning opportunities where, where institutions come through and determine that there's still a ways to go where we can improve. As we saw here in this 1998 movie, that was the lesser-known movie. You recall Armageddon was the big one that came out that same year. Same topic, Earth being destroyed by a meteor. Of course, that one that was more well-known was the USA saves the world and the meteor doesn't destroy anything. Here was a little more realistic movie where actually part of the meteor did hit Earth, and it caused a couple of years of... of a lot, of, a lot of nations being swept underwater and needing to be rebuilt. And we heard the, the speech by the President of the United States in that, talking about rebuilding. God sometimes uses opportunities as teaching moments to show us, to show his people that they have a long way to go. They still have a ways to go, to meet his expectations. When we think about his expectations, let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. When God set out his plan that he and his son, the word, as we heard in the intercessory prayer by Pastor Adrian, in verse 26, they said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. He continues that, We'll let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then he created, God 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We know this to be one of our foundational scriptures that for mankind that we go back and we see God's expectations for us to make us in his image and in his likeness. We look like he looks in a physical form, and his intention also is for our character and our likeness to be like him. As we have studied here, we can go to Philippians chapter 2, see another foundational scripture of God's expectation as we grow towards this kingdom that will come back to earth when the earth will really be rebuilt. Philippians chapter 2. We think of foundational scriptures. There's, we're going to hit on three or four. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He continues, who being in the form of God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he came in the likeness of men so that we could put on his character and become in the likeness of God and fulfill their goal back from the original creation. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Another foundational scripture setting apart, setting out God's expectations for us. In verse 1, I therefore, Ephesians 4 verse 1, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These are high expectations from our God for his people, and in part our little body here. When you drop down to verse 20, he expands upon this. But you, have not, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, examples here are foundational scriptures. And with Passover being now less than three months away, we see we have an opportunity as we prepare to reset ourselves as opportunities come along. When things go sideways, as sometimes they do, sometimes there needs to be a reset. Beyond all the theory and truths that, that one can learn, what happens when rubber meets the road? What happens when God provides an opportunity to test us and see where we are and remind us where we need to be? Let's go to James chapter 1. We talked about rubber meeting the road. James, the epistle of James, is a rubber meets the road kind of epistle. A, an epistle that is less theoretical and more tangible. And in verse 22, James chapter 1, we read that, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So we see here that God uses his Bible as a mirror for all of us, for all of his people, that if we continue in his word and be a doer of it, it is then that we find value in, his, in the truths that we read. So today what I'd like to do is take a look at the process of rebuilding as we see it in the Bible. And let's look, go through some examples in Scripture where institutions in the Bible were presented with an, an opportunity to reset and rebuild and see what kind of lessons we can learn as we start the 
quick approach here to Passover in a few months. Let's see what we can learn. See what people learn. What was their focus? What can we learn through their examples and opportunities to rebuild and reset? Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Let's start here with Noah. Genesis chapter 6. So it wasn't that long before this, ten generations, that I'll remind us that God had said, stopped and had saw everything that he had made, and it was all very good. Very good. Not just good, but very good, all that he had made. And in ten generations, verse 5 of chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But mercifully, he found Noah found grace in his eyes. Noah found grace in his eyes. So he says, listen, we need to restart. We need to start fresh and rebuild, and we're going to do it with Noah. Let me start again here with Noah. Dropping down to verse 17. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, with you, Noah, And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Chapter 7 and verse 1. Time proceeds. We know that now to be 120 years when we read further on in the New Testament. The Lord said to Noah in verse 1, Come into the ark and all your household, because I have seen that you are a righteous, that you are righteous before me in this generation. 120 years, and Noah was still righteous. What would have happened had he not kept up that righteousness? Where would God's plan have gone? That's speculation, and thankfully we don't need to go there. But God here was starting over with Noah. Verse 22 of chapter 7. We see the story continue to unfold. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the earth, both man and cattle, creeping thing and the bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Only Noah, his three sons, their wives, his wife, and the animals that God preserved with the ark, remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This was a total and complete destruction of all life on earth. Total and complete. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. It was now time to rebuild. It was now time to start over. God remembered. It is not, destruction wasn't complete. There is still a remnant of eight left on the ark. Let's go down to verse 15. God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. So the entire family began to participate in the rebuild. The entire family, we see here, started to participate in the rebuild. 
Then verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Once everyone was safely off the ark, and before the rebuild began, the first thing Noah did was worship God. The very first thing he did was put everyone's focus back on worshiping God. The rebuild started with and centered around worshiping God. How do we know? Let's go to chapter 9, verse 8. Because then God, upon receiving this worship, made a covenant with Noah and his family. Then God spoke, chapter 9, verse 8, to Noah and to his son, saying, As for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So not just with Noah, the covenant was with Noah and his family. And since we're talking descendants, that's kind of everybody, isn't it? And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. From complete perfection in creation, ten generations requiring a complete reset, through eight people, through one person, it was because of Noah, but obviously God used his family. They were able to begin a complete rebuilding process for the earth. And the very first thing they did was center this rebuild around the worship of God. Let's go to Genesis 37. Look at another example. Actually, go to Genesis 42. And as you go there, let's remind us of the story of Joseph as it begins in Genesis 37. We see here how the story of Jacob's family fell apart. Jacob's family... Twelve sons falls apart here. Joseph, we, we know that his story, spared from death by his jealous brothers, is sold into slavery, and then lives a life of massive ups and downs for t- the next 22 years. And what a life it was. Being nearly killed, but thankful because one brother stepped up and said, we can't do this. Let's at the very least just keep him alive and sell him as a slave which they did. And we know the story of Joseph being then sold to Potiphar, being well-respected by Potiphar, but then being set up by his wife. He then spends time in prison, makes friends with a couple of fellows, including the baker. Baker gets out and says, I'll, I'll remember you, don't worry. The baker gets out and then completely either forgets about him on purpose or gets on with his life and accidentally forgets about him. But then Joseph stays back in prison. And we know this, how Joseph was, was found by Pharaoh and was able to interpret dreams and, and became viceroy in Pharaoh's government. Genesis 42 brings us up to speed 22 years later. Joseph is 39 years old, the second in command in Egypt. And verse 7 says, Joseph saw his brothers. Now, we remember his brothers were sent by his father, Jacob, or Israel, down to Egypt to get some food. Because at this point in time, it was, there was a famine where they were, but everyone knew, it was well known that Egypt had food. They didn't know why. They just knew that they did. So Joseph or Jacob sent his brothers down, everybody but Benjamin, down to Egypt to get some food for the family. They come in front of Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And in recognizing his brothers, memories start flooding back. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of this land. And they said, no, my Lord, but we, your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And the story goes on. We don't have time to go into the, the whole story. We know the story. Joseph remembered what his brothers did to him. 
but so did his brothers. Verse 22, Reuben answered them when they were by themselves saying, did I not speak to you? Don't you remember 22 years ago I told you, don't, do not sin against the boy and you wouldn't listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. They didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. And he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon before them and bound him before their eyes. Verse 20. Let's just back it up a bit. As Joseph starts remembering, the memories come flooding back, and his brothers see all of their memories come flooding back. Joseph knows that they're not all together. Everyone is not here yet. Verse 20, he says, bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. Bring your youngest brother to me. They weren't all together yet. Joseph wanted them to be together when the reunion was going to happen. He, wasn't, he, was, he was acting angry with them, but he wanted to get Benjamin down there and have them all together. How do we know that? Let's go to chapter 43. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, once they had come back and Joseph saw that all his brothers were together, before he even accosted them and came in front of them, he said to the steward of the house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready. For these men will dine with me at noon. He had full intention of now that Benjamin was back in, in bringing the brothers back together and having a celebration. He was preparing for a glorious reunion with his brothers. A little more finagling happened. As you know, the, the story goes through. Chapter 45, if you'd go with me to chapter 45. He finally reveals himself to his brothers. Then Joseph, verse 3, said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. This was some reunion. After 22 years of all of these things that had happened, everybody has an opportunity here. And Joseph, as the leader, has an opportunity to direct where this is going to go. And watch what he does. He begins the rebuild by getting their minds off themselves, off their history, and all that led them to this place by placing the focus on God. But now, verse 5, Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler through all the land of Egypt. So they all come back together after 22 years. Joseph diverts their focus away from all that had happened, puts their focus on God and saying, God will be praised here, and God will rebuild. And the family of Israel, through which we, we now are a part of, began their rebuild. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Forty years have now passed. Not since the incident we just read about. 470 years, I guess, have passed. 430 from uh, the time that Abraham covenanted with God to the time that Israel left Egypt, and now 40 years beyond that. Brings us to Deuteronomy chapter 1. 40 years have passed since the children of Israel left Egypt, and things were about to change. Moses was about to prepare them for the promised land, this long-awaited promised land. These are the words of verse 1, Deuteronomy 1, which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab, 
It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. So they are now, again, a short journey from where they left to where they were to go, but it took them 40 years to get there. And now Moses is saying, okay, now it's time to listen. Now it's time to listen. Why now? Why all of a sudden? Deuteronomy 2. Verse 13. It was now time. Now rise and cross over the valley of Zered. So we crossed over the valley of Zered, and the time we took to, to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years, until all the generation of the men of war, that first generation, their parents, their parents' generation, was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. So it was, when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people, that the Lord spoke to me, saying, This day, they are now, that entire generation, save for Joshua and Caleb, has now passed, has now died. Now is the time that we can cross into the promised land. This day, you are to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I gave it to the descendants of Lot as a, as a possession. We know God keeps his promises. After Moses bringing them through a reminder of their history that brought them to where they were, the last of the older generation had died. So the time to start again in the promised land had come. Verse 24. Rise, take your journey, and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given you into the hand of Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. This day, from today, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Let me rebuild my people through you. The first generation has died. Let us now rebuild through you. Moses pleads his case one final time. We see that in chapter 3, verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth, small g, who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Moses pleads his case one final time. And God says, the decision is made. No. Then he refocuses Moses on the task at hand. It was not about Moses getting into the promised land anymore. He must prepare the people. He must prepare the people. Verse 1, now Moses, now O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you. Put yourself in Moses' shoes for a second. You've just been denied into the one place you have been preparing yourself for for 40 years. Walking in circles, an 11-day journey that took 40 years to do. And, you, and your, your time is coming to an end. You have now been denied access to the one place you've been looking for for 40 years. What does he do? The group is more important than me. I, I asked, I asked again, and I asked again. And when God, put his, God said no, it is now time to move on. Let me get them ready for their entrance. And he focuses them on God and how they should act in his promised land. We call how they should act his law. And now Moses takes the bulk of the rest of this book to explain the statutes and the judgments and the law. To teach them so that when they go in, they will learn how to live and learn how to possess. 
We've reviewed the life of Job on a couple of occasions over the last few years. If you haven't heard those messages, I encourage you to go listen to them again. But let's take a quick look at something that is relevant in this topic here as we look at examples of rebuilding in Scripture. Let's go to Job chapter 33. We know how Job's friends spoke rubbish for the most part until such time that Elihu, the youngest, waited his turn. And when his turn, his time came to speak, things started to change for Job. Let's, and let's look at what, we, what, what he said. And remember how destroyed Joseph, Job's life became. He was rich beyond measure, with family beyond measure, and God allowed the adversary to wipe it all away. Job 33. Verse 8, as Elihu attempted to help Job, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words, saying, I am pure and without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as an enemy. He puts feet in the stocks, my feet in the stocks, and he watches all my paths. Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. In his efforts to help Job, Elihu pointed him to where he stood with God. Then notice verse 23. This is the important part. If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's, and he shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God, and he will delight in him, for he shall see his face with joy, for he restores man to his righteousness. Then he looks at man and says, I have sinned. He looks at man and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see light. Behold, God works all these things, twice in fact, three times with a man, to bring his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. God's will is that we all be enlightened with the light of life, and can, he will continue to work with us until we get that. As Elihu continues to speak to Job, and we see this in chapter 34, 35, 36, 37, Elihu continues to speak. What is different when Elihu speaks from then when the others spoke is that Job was not given a chance to respond yet. God jumped in. Chapter 37, verse 24, is the end of Elihu's statements. Therefore, men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. Then the Lord answered Job, chapter 38, verse 1, out of the whirlwind said. Right away, God jumps in and doesn't allow a response from Job until much later on. And we walk through God's response here to Job. And we come to Job's response. And his response is one for the ages. One for the ages. Simple, contrite, and to the point. Listen, chapter 42, verse 4. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Then drop down to verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, while this lesson is, is to an individual, we can apply these in all rebuilds. Not only did Job place his focus on God, but he prayed for his friends who were leading them astray. And it was when he prayed for his friends, when he took the focus off himself, put it onto his friends who were trying to derail him. His life began to rebuild. God restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. That's when his losses were restored. Again, we can apply these lessons from all of these examples on an individual basis or a collective basis. Recall our studies of when Judah was allowed to return home under Cyrus and Darius after the Medes and the Persians defeated Babylon. 
We went through our youth studies with that. We've gone through it in messages. After they defeated Babylon, after building the foundation to the temple at the beginning of the second year, which we find described for us in Ezra chapter 3, it took them nearly 20 years to actually build the temple. They were so satisfied with the foundation that they stopped building. They were so pleased. You remember the the older men who had who had seen it before were so pleased, crying that they could that the foundation of the temple was built. But then they stopped building. They stopped building. Haggai chapter one. I get chapter 1, verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus the Lord of hosts says, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. And you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. God says, for 20 years nearly, you've been focused on yourselves. While my temple lies in ruins and remains unbuilt. At this point, God now turns his attention, not to individuals, as we saw in Job, but to the group as a whole. And we see that here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and the oil on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all of the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord God had sent him. Everyone now begins to pitch in to the rebuild. Not just Joshua, not just Zerubbabel, but to all of the remnant that are there. They are now all tasked with being part of the rebuild, going up into the mountains, finding the wood, building the temple. All of the remnant is tasked with the rebuild. John 21. After all of the tumultuous events of Christ's ministry, and I'm sure we'll be revisiting that in the weeks and months approaching Passover, of his trial, of his crucifixion, of his resurrection, it seemed like Peter needed to get away from it all. Chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples who were together. That's half the disciples there mentioned. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. After Christ appeared to them again these times, Peter's reaction was, I need to go fishing. I need to go. They said to him, we're going with you also. You know what? That sounds like a good idea to us. Let's go. We're going fishing. It was here that Christ was finally able to connect with Peter. While Peter was looking, it seems like Peter was looking to get away from it all. 
Christ used it as an opportunity to finally connect. Connect with one of his closest friends. There was the 12, but then there was the three that were closer, and then even John, who was even closer than the, two, than the other two. But it's here that Christ finally connected with him. You recall he had just denied him three times, his Lord and Master, who Christ said you would. He said, I would never do that. And then he did. As much as he couldn't believe he would, he ended up doing so. And here Christ connected with him. Verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Of course, Lord. Of course you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. If you love me, here's what I need you to do. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was frustrated because he said to him again, do you love me? All I wanted to do was fish. And now you're bugging me. You keep coming back at me. Do you love me? Of course you know I love you. He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. It was here he finally connected with him. If you love me, do what I need you to do. Forget the fishing and feed my sheep. Verse 20. We see here, verse 18, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So while Peter is looking to fish, and Christ finds him and finally connects him, he says, listen, I need you to feed my sheep. He also says, but by the way, you're probably going to die like I died. There's a selling point. That, there's a selling point. And Peter's, and, but Christ said, follow me. Then Peter, again, looking around, looked at John. He's the favorite. John's always the favorite. What about him? And we know Christ's answer. If I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So if you love me, get busy doing the work I gave you. But, but, but. Christ said, no buts. No buts. No buts. Once his focus, once Peter's focus was on building the church, feeding the flock, and not on himself. And once this, together, this group of disciples, once the focus was not on themselves, we see the great work that God was able to do through them in the book of Acts. But after all that had happened, all of the chaos and the mental anguish that watching their Savior die and finding themselves doing things they never thought they would do, like denying their Savior. Christ wouldn't let him just go fishing. He used that opportunity to connect and say, listen, we need to reset and refocus this group on the simplicity of their mission so they can move forward together. Peter, still reeling from his denial, was able to connect. And we see what happens in the very next page when we get into Acts, into the the Feast of Pentecost, mere days later, the transformation this had on Peter, the effect that this had, and the rebuild was in order. Why is all of this important? Why is all of this important? Because there is one ultimate rebuild that we have been asked to participate in. Let's go back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Verse 22. Again, we're looking at the end of this story for time's sake. 
The Lord God said, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Eden was closed down. When this happened, God closed the door on Eden. But Eden will be rebuilt. Let's go to Revelation 22. Eden will be rebuilt. And we have been asked to participate and invited to participate in that rebuild. Revelation 22. Looking at the end of the story, which we know and we know well. Verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever. Eden will be rebuilt. And that is the ultimate rebuild. The rebuilding of the heavens and the earth that we have destroyed is the ultimate rebuild. And we, as part of the first fruits, are asked and invited to participate with tasks to do along the way. So where does a rebuild start? Where do we go from here? The answer begins in this book. And what I'd like for you is to see the answer for yourselves. The answer is marked in this book as to where to begin. I'm going to start at the back, and I'd like for you to open this up, and when you find the answer, close it up and pass it along so that everybody gets a chance to see where the, the rebuild begins when we reach that, when we are presented with an opportunity to reset and rebuild. And while you're doing that, let's go to Ephesians 4. We have seen several examples of rebuilding and the lessons that we get from this rebuild. The example of Noah and God's opportunity to rebuild the earth through Noah and how everyone participated we see the example of Joseph rebuilding his family by focusing them on God. We see the second generation of Israelites who were allowed to cross into the promised land that as soon as that last member of the generation of war died. And Moses focused them on the law of God. We see Elihu and then God getting through to Moses, getting through to Job when Job finally got it. And an opportunity for Job to completely rebuild his family. We see the temple and an opportunity for all of God's people to work together to rebuild the temple. We see the disciples and how they had an opportunity to reset and rebuild. All pointing us to Eden and the opportunity to rebuild and help God rebuild Eden. Ephesians chapter 4, where to from here? God places us in the body where we are best suited. 
Ephesians 4, verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into the head of him who is the head, into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God places us in his body where we are best suited. There are roles to fill. And it takes all of us in the body, not just here, but in the greater body of Christ, to step up and fill these roles so that the body becomes complete and we edify and nourish one another. Some roles place us out in front and open us for scrutiny. Some are more background and supportive. But all are important and all are necessary for a full, healthy, and functioning body. This takes discernment of the body. Am I in the correct place in the body? If so, I am bound by God. I am bound by God to contribute to its health and function. When presented with an opportunity to rebuild and reset, we all must answer questions. What can I contribute to the rebuild? And where do I fit in? Cities fall, but they are rebuilt. Heroes die, but they are rebuilt. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.